Well, good morning. If uh, you're new to our church, I am not Pastor Mike Nolan. Pastor Mike will be here next week, but I have the privilege of beginning this new series called New Year's Revolutions. That's right, revolutions, not resolutions. And I hope each and every one of you had a wonderful Christmas and your uh, rest of your holiday season only continues to improve from there. And as we begin to approach that new year, it's customary to look back and reflect on the things that's happened this past year. And I'm no different in that. And in fact, newspapers, television, they'll commemorate in pictures uh, some of the events of 2018. And then editorials will be written and have been written about some of the highlights, you know, the great milestones and also the utter disappointments that this past year has brought. Some have been very significant and are very much worth remembering and reminding ourselves of today. For instance, I mean, who would have thought an entire youth soccer team would have been trapped underground without food or water for 10 days, and then 18 days after that, miraculously, all 12 boys and their coach were rescued. We give praise for that. And then, I don't know if you've heard this one or not, but this is a true story. One individual, and what are the odds, one individual survived both a bear attack and a shark attack in the same year this past year. I mean, that guy, if the third time's a charm, you don't want to be around him at all in the next year. So stay, stay away from Dylan McWilliams. That's Dylan McWilliams of Colorado. Thank God you're in California, I know. Other stories, you know, simply cause us to shake our heads and wonder and go, why? Why? For instance, Don Gorski, Wisconsin resident, why did he eat his 30,000th Big Mac sandwich in 2018? I mean, he's a 64-year-old individual, and that means for 46 years, he had two Big Macs per day. I mean, you got to think that your taste buds have got to crave something else, or maybe he ha no longer has taste buds. That could be, could be the case as well. Or when you hear that a North Carolina res uh, restaurant finally perfected the tarantula burger, I mean, that's a true story. Can you believe that? I mean, who, who, who was looking for a menu that you and your wife went out to eat and tried to find a place that had a good tarantula burger lately? I don't think that's on, on anybody's diet, but who knows? Maybe the Golden Arches will come up with the McArachnid uh, burger, and that will become the new choice of sandwich for Don Gorski in the future. We'll just have to wait and see. For me personally... You know, looking back at this year and the fact that I'm standing before you moving around feels good because the last time I spoke to you, I sat in a chair, and if you were around, you know that uh, I, my significant events from this past year was two heart surgeries, and I'm very thankful for your prayers, and I'm thankful for your patience as I continue to recover from those heart surgeries, and I'm grateful for the Lord and where He's brought me. Amen. Thank you. Tomorrow night, on the eve of a brand new year, you know, it's customary that we as we watch the seconds tick down and we get the fireworks ready and we loosen up our voice boxes so we can sing old Lang Syne, that we not only reflect on 2018, but many of us here will reminisce to a days further back, days gone by, days of yesteryear. You know, I don't spend a lot of time doing that. That's just not my general nature, but I do think that's a fault of mine at times because each one of us needs to stop at times and reflect and say, thank you, Lord, for the things that you've done for us that have brought us to this position. We need to stop and smell the roses. And a friend of mine told me, for instance, one thing I needed to do was because there have been so many new people that have arrived in Southwinds since I first arrived, which is four years ago, 
He told me, many people don't know your past, and you should share your vocation and update them. So I want to honor his request and just tell you a little bit about my former career. I spent, if you do not know it, 30 years as a college football coach in many different venues, many different stadiums, and so forth. By the way, 3-0 versus University of Southern California. I'll just say that. So, But it afforded me opportunities to get out there and to do things that I'm very grateful for. For instance, I coached a Heisman Trophy winner, and uh, Tim Brown, many of you know if you're Oakland Raiders fans, Tim, I coached at the University of Notre Dame, and let me tell you, that was the easiest job possible because I said, Tim, this quarter, we're going that way. And that was about it, and then he went out and made me a great coach by what he did on the field. But I also uh, recruited while I was at Harvard and signed and coached Ryan Fitzpatrick, he's a few, it was a, going to be a future NFL quarterback. He still is an NFL quarterback. He's with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers right now. And when, be, when I became a head football coach, more opportunities became apparent and available for me. I, I was on ESPN at one point in time. I also was fortunate enough to lead a football team onto the field against the number one ranked defending national champion Florida Gators in front of over 93,000 people in the swamp. And, uh, you know, I did not take that for granted as well, too. It was a wonderful experience that I was able to have. And, in fact, you may not know this, and this is a fact, this is true. My team that day set an NCAA record. It's one that, before you get too impressed, let me just tell you what the record is. We were the biggest underdog in the history of college football that day. <laughs> I kid you not, that's a true story. Now, we did not defeat Tim Tebow and his team that day, but uh, we did defeat the point spread. So at least we got that to talk about and brag about as well, too, and uh, that was a lot of fun. So, uh, but uh, off the field, I had some neat, interesting experiences as well, too. I mean, we traveled by charter plane most of the time, and when we were in a bus, I think Kim takes a picture of a, a bus uh, shot, we had police escorts wherever we went. That's our youngest who's graduating from college. So we had police escorts. Uh, most of the places where we went, Kim took this picture from our lead bus as we were heading to one uh, contest. And let me tell you from experience, it's a lot more fun to see 10 to 12 police officers with their lights on in front of you than in your rearview mirror <laughs> on I-580, you know. It's just much better than that. And when I was on the field or going to and from the locker room or post-game press conferences, I felt very secure because I had state troopers that were assigned to me for my bodyguards during that point in time. So I wish I could have had them when I was out Christmas shopping recently. It would have also been a great way to spend that time. But the thing about that experience over the years, I'm very fortunate. I have many treasured memories and and neat friends that I made during that time. But as I look back upon it and reflect, there's one common denominator that I had during that entire time that I got from all these moments, and that was this. All these experiences, at one point in time, I never anticipated coming. Never anticipated coming. And when I retired from coaching, the list of the things that I did not anticipate continued to grow. When I went into full-time ministry, the first position I was at, if you don't know, I was at a large church and. The organizational hierarchy put 63 people on church staff under me there, including 23 women from our child care center. One day, what I did not see coming came my way when the director of the child care center came over and said, we got an issue. We got a problem that I need some help with. I said, what is it? Well, what she was about to tell me, I tell you, honestly, I could not have seen it coming from the sidelines the year before when I was making calls against the Florida State uh, Seminoles. And what it was was this. She goes, we, I call it this, the great breast milk dilemma of 2014, okay? 
So here's what it was. What I learned from her was that one of her young women that had just returned back from maternity leave was taking excessive breaks to pump breast milk, not for her child, so she could sell the breast milk. Now, maybe most of you women know that you can sell breast milk, but am I safe to say that no guy in here knew that there's a market for breast milk? <laughs> Very few. Two guys actually raised their hands, but they did it like this. You know, I don't know if they wanted people to know that they knew. I had no clue about that. I certainly did not see that coming. But I was able to arrive at a solution that was agreeable to both the young woman, the 21 other women that worked at the child care center, and the director as well. And if you'd like to know what that answer is, you'll have to see me at another time because i got to get on with other things in the message here. I'll leave you hanging on that. But here's what all of us have. We all have stories in which we say, I didn't see that coming. You know, that was crazy. Wow. I mean, and the thing, the fact of it is, as we get more gray hair or we begin to thin in hair, we have more and more of those stories, do we not? Well, if time or history has taught us anything, what it has taught us is we are poor prognosticators of what will happen in the future. And with that as a theme, here's what I envisioned and where the Lord took me today, and it was this. What if you, from a year from now, on December 30th, 2019, could speak to you today? I wonder what you would tell yourself. I mean, haven't we all at one point or another said, if I would have known back then what I now know, right? Fill in the blank, right? Somebody probably said it this morning even. Well, if hindsight is 2020, then foresight's got to be even more valuable. So I took that as a perspective today to share with you, knowing that I th think that our future self would do everything that he or she could to prepare us for the things that we don't see coming. And if you're a Christ follower, hey, we don't need a crystal ball. It's going to be pretty clear. And here's the first thing that we would tell ourselves. Don't worry about what you do not know and you do not see. Don't worry about it. It is not about what we know or what we can accurately predict. It's about who we know. As we trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not into our own understanding, He will make our paths straight. I mean, we're in good company if we don't know what's happening next. I mean, look at the apostles. It says in Luke chapter 9, it says, they didn't get what He was saying. It was like He was speaking a foreign language, and they couldn't make heads or tails of it. But they were embarrassed to ask Him what He meant. Paul says we're in a similar boat. We're not alone if you've ever felt that way. Paul says this, now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. You see, we're not going to know everything and we're not going to be able to see everything as hard as we try. We were never intended to be able to have all the answers. Never intended to have that. We've got to realize that our desire to accumulate all that data is just basically our desire to basically protect ourselves, to insulate ourselves, to play God, to put a control environment out there that will prevent us from being hurt or those that are loved ones from being hurt. But the Lord does not want us to be secure in and of ourselves. The Lord wants us to do two things. He wants us to become dependent upon Him, and He wants us to do what He commands us to do. For that, limited data is all we need. Here's the attitude that we should have. It's re recorded in 2 Corinthians. Now, this is our boast. 
Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. See, wisdom is not only knowing who to rely on, wisdom is knowing what not to rely on. We can rely on him. And we are not to rely on ourselves or rely on others because he is accurate 100% of the time and I like those odds. Even when we do not see him, he's busy at work behind the scenes while we sleep, he's at work. And when we work, sometimes he's going to sleep and we don't want him sleeping. We want him working. Amen. His presence is assured. Now, God never really sleeps. I'm just saying that when we're trying to do stuff, we're getting in the way of him doing it. Does that make sense? We're getting in his way. But here's the key thing. We are, however, accountable, accountable for what we do know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. See, unseen does not mean unknown. The next chapter of your life story is unwritten, but it does not mean that it is uncertain or that we cannot predict the outcome. There are numerous examples in Scripture where God has revealed to His followers all that originally they could not see. There are also opportunities where He has blinded others from what is clear to those that follow Him. There's an instance in Elisha's life. And what occurred at this point in time is that the king of Aram was attacking Israel. And while he's attacking Israel, each and every time his efforts are thwarted. And it leads to this in 2 Kings. The king of Aram was furious over all this. He called his officers together and said, Tell me, who is leaking information to the king of Israel? Who is the spy in our ranks? But one of his men said, no, my master, dear king, it's not any of us. It's Elisha, the prophet in Israel. He tells the king of Israel everything you say, even what you whisper in your bedroom. The king said, go and find out where he is. I'll send someone and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. Then he dispatched horses and chariots, an impressive, impressive fighting force. They came by night and surrounded the city. Early in the morning, a servant of the holy man got up and went out. Surprise! Horses and chariots surrounding the city, the young man exclaimed, Oh, master, what shall we do? The master, Elisha, said this, Don't worry about it. There are more on our side than are on their side. Now, pause for a moment, and we've got to think about that. The servant must have thought he's nuts. You know, the naked eye can see that we are completely surrounded. We have no chance here. But then the passage goes on and says this. Then Elisha prayed, O oh God, open his eyes and let him see. The eyes of the young man were opened and he saw a wonder, the whole mountainside full of horses and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. When the Arameans attacked, Elisha prayed to God, strike these people blind. And God struck them blind, just as Elisha said. Then Elisha called out to them, not that way, not this city. When I read this, I'm going to pause again and say, I know George Lucas had to be reading this passage when he came up with Star Wars. 
These are not the drones you're looking for, okay? Not that way, not this city. Follow me and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them into Samaria. As they entered the city, Elisha prayed, Oh God, open their eyes so they can see where they are. God opened their eyes. They looked around. They were trapped in Samaria. I mean, do you ever feel surrounded? And if you have, do you think it's possible in the next 365 days that you might possibly feel surrounded one time? Maybe you and I just need to pray that our eyes be opened and we see reality for what it truly is. Your future will see, uh, your future self will see it all more clearly because from that vantage point, they will be able to look back and tell us, fear not, the Lord has got you covered. Regardless of what the odds may appear, in reality, it's the enemy that's completely surrounded. But here's the key question you've got to ask yourself, and that is, have you professed Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Have you given yourself optical vision to see what others cannot see, to know what others do not know? If you have not, I encourage you, see me or one of our other pastors afterwards, we'll share that with you because we too want to see and have all of our eyes open. And we know there's repercussions for us not being able to do so. And here they are in Isaiah 44. For those who do not believe his word, here's what his word says. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. In other words, those who do not profess Jesus Christ as Lord, the future for them is destruction, and guess what? They will not even see it coming. I would not wish that upon my worst enemy. Our job is to spread that word so that the Holy Spirit might go to work and open the eyes of all so they might realize what is available. We don't want anyone to take the root of the Arameans. See, for a Christ follower, it's what we don't see that counts. Our eyes can deceive us. We know there's instances of optical illusion, like the eyes of Elisha's servant. He cer- they certainly did not tell the whole story. But when his eyes were open, he then realized what Elisha already knew. They weren't trapped. They had the adversary exactly where they wanted them. It was the old bait and switch. Now, obviously, I love the game of football, but one of the reasons why I love the game of football is because there's so many real-life parallels to this game, like the bait and switch. Let me give you an example. When the quarterback goes back to pass, and as he drops back to pass, and he's looking for a receiver to throw to, the linebackers across from him, if they're playing zone coverage, they go back in their drops and get them in position where they can look for where receivers might be, and they can look and see where the quarterback may throw. And here comes the bait and switch. Offensive coaches know this. I'm going to put eligible receivers shallow. So when the quarterback is looking at the linebacker to determine where to go with the football, what is the linebacker instinctively going to do? He's going to come up to what he sees and jump that route. And then what does the quarterback do? He throws behind it to a receiver that has been put strategically in a position further down the field for better gain. And I would tell my linebackers, listen, don't fall for the bait and switch. When the quarterback looks at you, back up. No matter what you see, it comes down to faith. Trust me in this. Faith is being sure of what we do not see. 
And we are to live by faith, as Paul said, not by our sight. It's like the man and his wife that walked into the dentist office one day. And as they went into the dentist office, the man said to the dentist, Hey, doc, I'm in a hurry. I don't have time for, you know, for anesthetic. Uh, I have two buddies that are waiting out in the car for me. I've got to hurry. I don't have time for the gums to get numb. I just want you to pull this tooth and get on with it. You see, we have a 10 o'clock tea time on the best golf course in the city, and it's 930 already, so I don't have time for the anesthetic to go to work. And the dentist thought to himself, Man, this golfer has got great guts. So he said, Which tooth is it? And the husband looked to his wife and said, open your mouth, honey, and show him which tooth it is. <laughs> you didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> see, for the Lord, it is what he sees in the Christ follower that truly counts. It's what you do that is relevant. I mean, our actions have got to authenticate the words from our mouth that we profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that our actions should support it. If they don't, they actually dispute the contention that we want others to realize and know about us. And get, please get me right. I'm not saying that it's about works. We are still fa- saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But our actions should lead to fruit that verify that we're actually on the Lord's team. Look at this picture from 1961. And what looks obvious is this is an old-time football game, and you got the football team running the field, and that's the coach with his hat waving it in the air because that coach was Frank Howard, and he traditionally did that when the team entered the field. This is just after halftime. Now, let me tell you what reality this is. This is the Sigma Nu fraternity pulling a practical joke on Clemson University Tiger fans. They are actually the frat brothers in these uniforms, and they ran out just before the second half with one of their frat brothers holding the hat and simulating the head coach, and the entire stadium was fooled. The cheers, the crowd erupted in ovation when they saw what they thought was their team running on the field. And here's the moral of this story. It's this is that temporarily we can all play the part, but it's just a masquerade if we're unable or unwilling to get in the game. We are not to practice what we preach. We're to practice what he preaches. And in Mark 11, we see a great example that's given to us by our Savior. Seen in the distance, a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he, Jesus Christ, said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. See, the appearance of leaves in full bloom should have meant that there was fruit that was growing, but it was not. Jesus' actions here have symbolic importance. They signify the hypocrisy of all who give the appearance that they are bearing fruit, but they're actually fruitless. Here, the cursing of the tree signifies the judgment of God in the fruitless Jewish people who had turned away from God to empty ritual and legalism. It's a visual parable. It's an object lesson used to signify Jesus' unreciprocated search for true worship, true prayer, true righteousness. And it would have done them well at that time to pay attention to his words. And we would be wise. It would bode us well to pay attention to the lesson today. See, the uniform we wear is merely a costume if we're unwilling to play in the game. If you've been on the bench and you've been looking for an opportunity to enter the field of play, then you're in luck. Let me share this with you. Southwiz is on the verge, arguably, 
to having our biggest game in our church's existence. And we've been around since 1947, so that's saying a little something. See, we need more teammates to do the work of the Lord, to prepare what He is entrusting into our care today. It's all about next gen, the grand opening and beyond. This is our way of impacting our community. Tracy, Mountain House, Lathrop, for Jesus Christ and, and delivering that timeless and invaluable message. Over 400 people, I want you to know, have financially contributed to Next Gen. And if you're one of those people, we give thanks to you today and pray that you will continue to support this important spiritual initiative because we are a long way away from reaching our financial obligation. If you have not supported financially, we would ask you to pray and see what God's will is for you in what he's entrusted into your care. Above and beyond tithes and offerings, investing into something that will have eternal dividends is what we're talking about. We need also, in addition to that, we need volunteers. We need people to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ so that we are equipped to take care of all those newcomers who will be coming from a 400-seat auditorium to a 700-seat auditorium. That's why we put in your programs today an insert, Next Gen Grand Opening and Beyond. It gives you an opportunity to play a part. Maybe it's children's ministry that you gravitate towards or student ministry that you feel a connection to. The Holy Spirit speaking to you. There's no question about it, and He will give you the right path. Or maybe it's one of the many guest service ministries that we have at this church. Most of these roles are for one Sunday per month at one service. The commitment is minimal, but I want you to know the blessing for others and for you is monumental. See, ministry has been and always will be a hands-on initiative. And your future self would tell you today, don't waste any time. Join the Lord's team in what he wants to do through his church that he created 2,000 years ago. I mean, one day we will all stand before the throne and there's just no way we're going to be able to justify inactivity. Our Savior has made it abundantly clear with your time, with your talents, with your treasures, we must do more than bear leaves. We must bear fruit. Fans may be fooled by a fraternity stunt, but not our Lord. Jesus is able to separate fact from fiction, imposters from those who truly belong. Jesus knows the real deal when he sees it. We need to get going. That's what you would be telling yourself. Get going. General Douglas MacArthur said this, The history of failure in war can almost be summed up in two words. Too late. Too late in comprehending, I do know that he's coming up. Our security has been notified, so I am aware of that. I'm not getting blindsided, going back to football analogy here. Too late in comprehending the deadly purpose of a potential enemy. Too late in realizing mortal danger. Too late in preparedness. Too late in uniting all possible courses for resistance. Too late in standing with one's friends. We need to run the right route, and we need to get going. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. I mean, when your dad's a math teacher, you learn that at an early age. At the same point in time, the Lord is and will alter our course from time to time. 
the route that we take is similar to a route that we might take in the game of football. And again, I go back to football for an analogy. So I'm going to show you a post route, okay? A post route. Now, straightest distance to the goal line is point A to point B is straight ahead. But a post route has an altered, altered course in it. It's called a post route, if you're not sure, because running down the field and you break towards what would be the goalpost. But what you may not know and what Gene's going to help me with, two more steps if you would. Gene's right there. That's good. Gene is going to help me demonstrate there's more than one type of route. There's more than one type of post route. First of all, there's a hard post. A hard post is I'm the wide receiver. I'm going to run down the field a predetermined distance. I'm going to plant my outside foot at 10, usually 12 yards in distance, throw my hips open, drive inside, keep my body between the defender and the quarterback that will be throwing the ball so I can shield it and protect the football from being intercepted. That's a hard post. But then did you also know there's a get-open post? A get-open post is different. A get-open post, I don't care if Gene is 5 yards from me, 25 yards from me. It's not based on a hard distance. It's based on him. It doesn't matter whether he's inside leverage, outside leverage, or he's head up to me. I'm going to run a weave to get within the framework of his body, and I'm going to run as long as I possibly need to till I get to a point where I'm upon his body where we literally want to step on his toes, and then I'm going to take the easiest release. I can go over the top or I can go underneath, and then I take an angle that I choose. Whatever angle will get me most open, and the quarterback's responsibility is to see that, throw the ball with trajectory, and lead me in the direction that I've already predetermined, decided to run. And then there's a third post. It's a landmark post. And a landmark post begins like a get open post. I have my weave. I'm working his framework. I go to step on his toes. I have the easiest release over under him. And then I'm running for a landmark on the field. And the landmark on the field is a hash mark. When I talked to my wide receivers at Harvard, I would tell them, I want you to run and release on that landmark to the, uh, land, uh, to the hash mark, but I do not want you to cross that hash mark unless the ball leads you there. I want you to get ever closer to that hash mark, but never touch that hash mark. And one of my wide receivers opened up and he said, oh, so you want me to run an asymptote post? And I said, what? An asymptote post. I said, what's an asymptote post? He goes, that would be when two lines converge, ever getting closer, but never actually touching. I said, yeah, that's exactly what I want you to run, an asymptote post. And when I left Harvard, then I went back to call it a landmark post after that. So thanks, Gene. I appreciate that. So there's three different types of post routes. There's different routes that each of us run, but we're all heading to what? The same destination. We're heading towards the goal line and trying to get there in the most efficient manner. So what we need are biblical principles that will be able to take us from the starting point to the conclusion and get us there as best as we possibly can. There are four stages to a post route, just like there's four stages. Let me see the next one that shows. There we go. Just like there's four stages in life. There's a start, there's a stem, there's a breaking point, and there's a finish. Okay? The key thing is, first of all, for us to get off to a great start. Okay? There are New Year's resolutions. We all know about those, and we're calling this New Year's revolutions. We're addressing it today in the next two weeks. And what we need to be able to get from point A to point B eventually, is we need to have release techniques that help us get beyond the things that want to disrupt our course, like press technique. Show me a picture of press technique, if you would. 49ers. There we go. All right, there's press technique. Carter, being rerouted by the 49er right there. There's something in his path and not allowing him to get to where he wants to get to, to funnel him either outside where there's a boundary and they've never missed a tackle the sideline or funnel it inside down the line of scrimmage. But what does the defensive back not want you to do? Get down the field. 
So in our life, the parallel is clear. There are obstructions, there are obstacles that we're going to need to take on as we release and try to get down the field. I brought up an obstruction. All right, so I want you to put your hands up like this, Dave, all right? Okay, and just keep them like that. All right, so I am going to get... Now, first of all, uh, my job is to demonstrate this illustration. Your job is to make me look good, okay? All right, just want to make sure we're clear on this, okay? So what I'm going to do is as I'm running and there's something that wants to reroute me, then literally what I'm going to do is I'm going to step with the same foot that I'm reaching with an arm. I'm going to shoot my hand from the hip as if I'm pulling out a six-shooter from a holster, and I want to hit the meat of his arm and pin it to the side of his body, making him a one-armed fighter. And then violently, I need to get my arm over and punch or rip under in order to get my far hip past his near hip because that's my best chance of getting past as unimpeded as I possibly can And prayer for God also to be able to do it to get that near hip past that far hip. So I get here, and then when I get through, to push off and drive off of his back and separate from that obstruction. Thank you so much. I appreciate that very much. <laughs> appreciate that. So, so <clears throat> I demonstrate that to you because, listen, what it says in God's Word is this. David was a man after God's own heart, but look at what David said in Psalm 144. God trains my hands for war, literally and figuratively. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be obstructions, and we have to have a release technique that we can utilize to get past it and get beyond it. We want to engage the future, and faith is not the absence of conflict. It's how to handle that conflict. We must condition ourselves for the inevitable Because unseen disruption awaits each and every one of us. And for some of us, I want you to know it's to your past. We cling to our past and it hurts us in two ways and we need to release from that. Number one, it could be that we're clinging to something in our past, dwelling on a mistake, something that we've beaten ourselves up on and we've got to release it. I mean, God's word says in 1 John 1, 9 that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's a cleanliness right there. Let it go. And then for others, this may be a great success, and you're living in the past, and when you live in the past, you're unable to take advantage of today and what he's bringing tomorrow. We must release it. Paul said, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to take hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press on towards the goal for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We need to use a release technique, and I'll tell you more about a release technique later. Then there's the stem. The stem is the fundamental part of the route that we run. It's the basics that we cling to that get us from the start and get momentum towards the finish. And for us, we need to focus on the one who orchestrates and plots our course. That's what we do with the stem. And what we do is we communicate with the Lord regularly. How do we do that? We do it through prayer. We do it through the Bible. Now, I received years ago a playbook, the San Francisco 49ers playbook from the early 80s. Now, this was a heyday of San Francisco 49er football. I mean, Joe Montana read from this playbook, and Jerry Rice and Dwight Clark and Roger Craig and all them read from the playbook. And it hit me again. Here's the analogy. Metaphorically, we have got to use the Bible as our playbook. I mean, how successful do you think they would have been if they didn't open the playbook? I mean, they wouldn't have made the team, right? 
The next thing that would have happened is they got to get in the playbook. We got to get in the word. The next thing is we have to have communication with our coach. Again, you turn in any game and there's constant communication, whether it's sideline to sideline or sideline to press box or back again between the coach and the athlete. And we need the same thing. There's a master coach above that we need to communicate with so we understand what and how to define what's happened in the past and how to use it for the benefit in the future and how to advance his cause, his calling, and our purpose that he's given us. We'll go back again, and as we look at this, what it made me think of was it made me think of Jacob. And Jacob in Genesis 28 says this, when he reached a certain place, what's that tell you? He was en route. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending. Remember that. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. What Jacob was saying was, I did not see that coming. But his contact with the Lord made him able to see and to be able to know. He never saw the guidance that he'd received. Remember, the angels were ascending and descending. If they're ascending, then that's telling us one thing. They were already present. Just like the Lord today is present with us right now. It's not something in the future. It's not something tomorrow. He's with us every step of the way. And the Lord also foreshadowed the blessings that which were to come for Jacob, just as he's foreshadowed those which are available to us now and all of eternity. The Lord spoke to Jacob through a dream. And the great news is we don't have to fall asleep or wait till tonight or put the my pillow under our head. We have access to the throne 24-7, 365, whenever we want it. Next phase in the route is the breaking points. The breaking points are a portion of our route where we come to a temporary stop or maybe our course is altered. We have a detour of some type in front of us. We need to know when we are to stop and when we are to go. Again, the repercussions can be painful. I'll show you this video clip. That had to leave a mark, did it not? Well, here's the, here's the moral from this and the lesson from this is you've got to know when to stand still and when to move. We've got to be able to read the signs, and the signs are out there available to be read. If you study the playbook and if you pay attention and you seek the Lord in prayer, He will give you the direction. Otherwise, we can be in for a world of hurt as well. We don't want to get ahead of God. Just because you've been called to do something does not mean that God's called you to do it today. There's plenty of examples. Look at David. David was anointed as king of Israel, and yet 15 years later is when he assumed the throne. 
If you're in a position today where you're to wait, you actively wait, you wait patiently, and you wait confidently knowing this. Exodus 14, 14 says the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. At the same point in time, if you're to move, you need to move. You need to get going. 1 Kings 19 to me summarizes it all, and this may be where you're at today. It says this, Elijah was afraid in verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Well, first of all, running for his life and being afraid, that tells you he's running the wrong direction. So what happens next? Well, in verse 8, the Lord says to Elisha, get up, prepare for the journey. And then, verse 9 and verse 13, the Lord asks a question which should pierce us at times. He says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Have you felt that way? Or maybe do you feel that way today? I mean, I know I have. What are you doing here, Jay? What are you doing here? Insert your name here. But here's not, that's not where he left him. The next thing the Lord shares with him, verse 11, was this. Go out and stand before me. So maybe you have been disengaged from the Lord. Maybe it's a period of a day, weeks. Maybe it's been years. The first thing God calls you to do is what? To re-engage with him. Go out and stand before me, says the Lord. And then finally, in verse 15, the last move that we have, go back the same way you came. Go back the same way you came. Summarize it this way. Get up, go out, and go back. In other words, if you have removed yourself from action, you've taken yourself off the playing field, it's time to get on the field again. Get back in the game. Fourth phase of the route is the finish. The finish of the route is where we accelerate to the end zone. We pick up the pace, and I like the verse from 1 Thessalonians 4 that highlights this. It says this, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that just as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually are walking, that you excel still more. I think excel still more. That means do better, and that also means accelerate. Hit the throttle. As a coach, I can tell you, and I can take each person here who's willing to be coachable, and I can make you literally faster. I know the mechanics that will help improve your speed in what you do if you're going out for a run. Basically, speed comes down to two things, stride frequency and stride length. It's about elongating our stride, and it's about the turnover of our legs. And that equates for a Christian walk to this. It's about extending ourselves more and doing it more and more frequently. Most people get confused that are trying to learn how to run faster, literally. See, they pump their arms as fast as they can, and they think because they see their arms moving that they're getting somewhere, and they really aren't. Once again, it's what you don't see that counts, and somebody teaching you and training you in running knows that it's the thrust backwards with a 90-degree angle in the arm that propels you forward. You equate that to what we're doing, and it's this. It's not about activity, it's about achievement. It's that our efforts are concerted, that they're united together, and that what we do has purpose and meaning.
as a coach, I would tell you this. We need to know more, see more, and do more. The master coach expects us to implement New Year's revolutions that produce real-life change. The next thing we would tell ourselves, and we probably do at times, is to grow up. Have a mature perspective. I mean, I heard my wife say a couple weeks ago, I just got to put my big girl pants on. I heard my mom say that, believe it or not, less than 48 hours ago. I was in a store the other day, and a guy had a t-shirt on that said, suck it up, buttercup. And after the first service, a guy said, uh, uh, he always tells himself, I got to drink my suck it up juice in the morning. I assume that wasn't coffee, but uh, those are the things that Scripture says. Jesus says it this way. In Scripture, it's this. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives towards you. Or in Ephesians, we read this. No prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love. Like Christ in everything, we take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. There are important lessons from Christ that our future self wants to share with us today. They concentrate on how we can handle the inevitable challenges that lie ahead. First, don't confuse His will with unanswered prayer. The illustration we get comes from, again, Christ Himself. In Mark 14, it says this, Going a little farther, He fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from Him. Abba, Father, He said, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, but yet, not what I will, but what you will. You see, just because you're in a circumstance and you have prayed and you're still in the circumstance does not mean that the Lord did not hear you. The Lord has your best interest in mind. And we've got to be able to separate His power from our desire. We must always have confidence in His power. If He wants to, like that. But we also must realize that we must submit to His will, just like Christ did, no matter what. No matter what. His way is best. Second, Jesus says this, be faithful. In Revelation chapter 2, we read this, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. We're not to hang in there. We're not to keep our chin up, or as my dad would say, keep your dauber up. We are, simply put, to be faithful regardless. I came across this story and I thought this would illustrate it well and this would be something that would resonate with you. Living a, as a Christian under Romania's dictatorship posed extreme difficulties and dangers. Even though Reverend Joseph Son had counted the cost and served the Lord and his flock faithfully, 
He feared the day that he would be called in by security. He knew the possibility of facing death was inevitable. The day that Joseph feared arrived. Security officers arrived at his home one day and took him to their headquarters. He was instructed to sit on a chair and a gun was put to his head. The choice is easy, came the commander's voice. Deny Jesus or we'll pull the trigger. This was indeed the moment that Joseph feared all through his ministry. But suddenly, the Spirit of the Lord filled his whole being. If you kill me today, you will do me a great favor. All my sermons that were recorded will be in great demand because I will become a martyr for Christ. You will help me to greatly share my messages. You will also help me to go to my Lord quickly. Joseph fearlessly replied. The officer dropped the gun. You Christians are crazy. He shouted and then commanded the officers to take Joseph back home. Joseph's life was spared, but in a sense, he lost it that day. Never again did I fear what man could do to me. Never again did I fear to lose my life, Joseph concluded. Let the you one year from now tell yourself today that you are, if you are in a precarious place, your saga is not over. You have not been forgotten, and you never will be. It's there in God's Word. It backs it up, and it's in bold print. The psalmist says this, The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night, nor any chamber from any gun. And that's a guarantee. See, everyone wants to finish strong. Few people do. Most people desire to start strong. Thus our resolutions. But the real thing about it is we need a game plan to stay strong. For a Christ follower, there's two port parts to this successful game plan. And it's not in your notes, but please jot it down. Number one, to know the right things to do and the impact of whether we do them or not. To know the right things to do and the impact of whether or not we do them. Newton's third law of motion says this, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, and whether you put it in these terms or not, you already know this to be the case, because choices have consequences, and decisions determine destiny. You are where you are today because of the choices that you made yesterday. If you don't like where you're at, then you need to make better decisions today, and then tomorrow. If you like where you're at, then humbly, you need to remember that things never stay the same. They either get better or they get worse. And you need a plan in order to continue to take it in the correct direction. First Corinthians 10, 12 says this, be careful lest you fall. Be careful. See, choices have consequences and decisions determine destiny, but the real key is the choices need to be made ahead of time. They need to be preemptive. We need to make those choices before the question even arises. When we determine ahead of time what we truly value, we don't even see the fork in the road. It's a straighter path than you've ever seen before. Number two, 
We need to do those right things daily. We do not implement a plan sporadically and ever hope it will take us anywhere. How many of you professionally would have that as a model for true success? We need to execute it over and over and over again. A coach knows it needs to be replicated in order for it to take root, in order for there to be traction. See, repetition breeds reinforcement, and reinforcement is the mother of all success. As Paul said, I don't mind repeating what I have written, and I hope you don't mind hearing it again, because it is better to be safe than sorry. Our conscious mind gets tired of hearing things or seeing the same things day in and day out, but not our subconscious mind. It reinforces the actions, the behaviors, the choices that we truly want to have represent our lives. See, our flesh, our enemy, and the world are constantly going to try to put disruptions out there, things that we need to release technique for. They're constantly going to try to distract us. If you knew all the things that have happened just in the last few days as I prepared for this sermon, one thing became very obvious. The Lord wanted this sermon to be delivered and the enemy did not. To help you between that interval of day one and day 365, we need to have more than just good intentions. We need to have a plan, an action plan to help. So what our pastor team has done is we worked on this in the last month. We put a good deal of time into this. This is available on the tables as you leave. Take as many as you like. We'll order more. But we need reinforcement daily. It's called choices. And it says choices have consequences. Decisions determine destiny. And on the inside, what we did was we went through and prayerfully determined eight things that we knew that you would want to remind yourself of to help you get to day two, to day 60, to day 120, to get to the end of the year the way you intended it at the start. We gave a scripture passage to support it, so you know that it's not just our word, it's God's word. And we also gave the equivalent opposite, the natural proclivity that you're returning to or that you're choosing when we don't choose the thing that's on the correct side of the column. And then finally, we put a blank line at the bottom. Choose this or this for you to fill in anything you want there. Something that the Lord is specifically talking to you about that is what you need to release through this year. And you can look up your own verse and put it there. Again, take as many as you like. We hope that it will be something that will help you keep the main thing, the main thing each day of the year. It's like what we read in Deuteronomy. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates and put them in your wallet and put them in your pocket and put them on the mirror and put them on the sun visor. If we wish to end well, we know we need to start well, but we also need to live well in the interval in between. We need more than good intentions. 
We must rehearse so that our intentions become our habits. We must practice so that we do not default to our natural inclination, but instead become all what God has chosen and wants us to be. We must choose this day whom we will serve and then wake up tomorrow and choose it again. And then the next day. And then the next day. And I leave you with this. A poem titled, The Beginning of a New Day. This is the beginning of a new day. God has given me this day to use as I will. I can waste it or use it for good. But what I do today is important because I am exchanging a day of my life for it. When tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever, leaving in its place something that I have traded for it. I want it to be gain, not loss, good, not evil, success, not failure, in order that I shall not regret the price that I paid for it. Because the future is just a whole series of right now. The you from one year from now wants you to know today and wants you to choose wisely each day so that you will be prepared for everything that you don't see coming. We have a power as Christ followers, a special power. And this is our power. We can see him and we can see that which is invisible. Would you bow your heads with me?